Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, dear colleagues from all over the world. Uh, you are welcome to the European uh, Society of Intensive Care Medicine. And today is an important day as we are delighted to welcome Professor Elisa Stansoro. Professor Elisa Stansoro is a professor of critical care and uh, she is uh, in uh, La Plata, which is in the region of Buenos Aires in Argentina. And uh, we are welcoming your questions uh, uh, as they are going to be uh, uh, transferred uh, to Professor Estensoro. And uh, the first question coming from the audience, uh, Elisa, is a very important one, is uh, how is the COVID-19 doing in uh, South America and uh, specifically in, um, in Argentina? Well, first of all, thank you, Elie, very much for, for this invitation. And uh, we could say that uh, not very different, not very different from other parts of the world. Uh, well, we have we are now in the middle of um, a third wave, and which luckily has not been so deadly as the previous one. And in 2020, we had a very delayed first wave. You see, because in Argentina, lockdown lockdown was very rapidly established in March because we're all receiving March 2020. No, we're all receiving all this communication, especially from European society of. of uh, our European friends, especially from Italy and Spain. So we know what was coming. And in that sense, the government acted very rapidly. They established a lockdown that was very much criticized from the political point of view. We can speak of that days. But the thing is that it gave us time, we say we gave us time to the intensivists because um, the government could buy ventilators, uh, all this, um, all kinds of devices, you see, and personal portable equipment. And, and during this time, this was, I would say, provided. And well, really, we, we looked at the other countries, our neighbors, and really had the first wave before us in Chile, Ecuador, even in Brazil, no? they had their first waves in, I would say, April, May, and ours occurred in August and September. So, in a way, well, as I told you, there, were, there was no lack of all kinds of equipment, but uh, personal health workers, of course, they were scarce. Because, as in any other parts of the world, there are no many uh, physicians that are interested in critical care, no many nurses. So there was this, this intention from the government to, to have all these people to, um, to name or to permit the, the, the admission of these people to the, to the health system. But the thing was that there were no available physicians, as happened all around the world. So other specialists were um, or began to, to work in the ICU, especially cardiologists, um, internal medicine specialists. So we had really a problem, a problem of scarcity of human resources, not original, no, because this happens everywhere. As you say, Elisa, the, you describe a situation that was indeed the same in many countries in Europe and elsewhere in the world. You refer to a very important event that was the ESICM COVID-19 webinar, and this marathon was a, a, a wonderful opportunity to, to train um, uh, 15 to 18,000 people and allow them to understand better how we can manage the surge and how we can deal with such a pandemic. And 
when we did the, the COVID-19 uh, uh, marathon, uh, one of the topic was about uh, healthcare providers. How are doing your nurses and your doctors in Argentina? In what sense? Uh, <laughs> they, they have been facing so difficult events that elsewhere in the world, in Europe, yes. in the United States and Canada and elsewhere, we report a, a larger prevalence of burnout, of symptoms of anxiety, depression, insomnia. Is it the same in your experience? Of course, of course. And I tell you something, no, there's another difference um, which makes things worth here. Um, really, the salaries are very low. The salaries for health personnel in general are very low. And this doesn't occur in other countries. For example, in Uruguay, in Chile, in Brazil, this doesn't happen. So apart from the burnout, the people that die, that get uh, that get sick, which was very frequent, and the indifference of the society because <laughs> the, 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 this, the, there was this feeling of of, um, of isolation too. No, we are working in the ICU. We are risking our lives, the lives of our families in the first in the first wave, and the society didn't want to take care of themselves. They didn't recognize the problem as such. You see, so this it was a kind of you know, depersonalization, no, because or, 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 or dissociation, no, the feeling of dissociation between the IC workers or the health workers in, in general and the rest of the society. That was very painful. So during the first wave, there were no vaccines, remember, no, nobody know, nobody knew well what was going to happen. And we had a prolonged periods of isolation of all contacts, two weeks. So the person working in the ACU became extremely scarce, you see? So there were a few <laughs> to begin. Many got sick. Many had to be in isolation for having had contact, as I told you, two weeks of isolation. So the rest that remained in the ACU really had the, the biggest burden of their lives. And some left the specialty. Um, most remained really, but some left, and some um, are still with problems, you know, psychological problems. Have returned, have the intention to return to the specialty, but still can't. You see, because this only not happened, did not happen in the ICU. But I would say uh, different hospitals um, around. Um, how, how can I say they were called uh, unities of prompt attention? That was the, the, the name. So, but there were yes. ventilated, there were ventilated patients there. You see, so there were some doctors that stayed there in these unities that couldn't be replaced because they have they have no possibility. Nobody could <laughs> replace them, and stayed there. You know, hours and hours and hours being. Uh, looking at terribly sick patients and looking at terribly sick patients that died. So this burden of seeing so many people died was so, so uh, stressing. I think you, you are pointing out a very important thing about uh, the environment that makes that uh, an ICU bed has uh, nurses, has doctors, and has specialists in the delivery of critical care making that uh, we can really uh, uh, train people to better cope with uh, uh, delivering critical care. Professor Estenso, I have another important question for you. You are a worldwide expert. You are a leading professor and you're a woman. And uh, my, my question for you is, how is it to be a so important person, a professor of uh, critical care as a woman in South America? 
what is your experience? Uh, I have read with so much uh, interest uh, the paper that was published on you in the Lancet Respiratory Medicine. Can you tell us more about this experience uh, and everything that you transferred to us uh, in this publication? Well, the thing is, it's different to be a woman now than uh, to be a woman, <laughs> uh, a physician in critical care or in any other field, you no, know, 20 years ago or 25 years ago. But I must say that um, I know I was always so convinced of what I was doing that I didn't take care of gender. But gender issues existed. You know? And now I see that now that we are more aware of this, now I see um, things that we've been exposed to and that we take it for granted, you see. Uh, now young physicians are different, young female physicians, and that's okay, that's good. I was used to be the one and only woman in a group of, I know, 20 male physicians, you see, especially internationally. And, and you know, sometimes, well, it was a bit difficult, you see. Now, now our teams are increasingly diverse, increasingly balanced, uh, and uh, we are having uh, more women than men in medicine and as much as women as men in critical care. So what's your message for the young professionals uh, uh, from every, you know, every part of the world, every gender? What is your message? What is your positive and optimist message for them for the future? Oh, well, um, for all, not only for me, for female, or for, or for female physicians. What are you saying? For female physicians and for female physicians in critical care. I, I, I tell you something before my optimistic measure. We did a, um, a study uh, of, on gender in Argentina in critical care. And what we found it was a transversal study. And what we found was that only 18% of the critical care, the ICU directors were women, 18%. But um, on duty physicians and residents were more than 50% women. So, no, the, the, how to say, the glass ceiling will break, I think, no? Uh, because there is a, and another thing we noticed, and it is so gendered um, marked, is that um, the best or the best paid, um, the best paid uh, jobs, which are in the private medicine, all those or nearly all those uh, critical care um, medical directors are men. You see, so most uh, most um, directors and mo most bosses are men. I would say, and of them, and most well-paid jobs are, um, are, are are men in them. So. Um, I hope that this will change. I, I'm sure this will change because this is um, connected to, to something that the young generations of female physicians have and, and of female professionals have is this, this awareness of the gender bias. So um, that is my message, just to be just only just to be conscious about this. You no, know, this you have. You don't need, or we have not to naturalize all these differences. And, and this message applies to everyone, uh, whatever the, the of course. gender. Thank you of very course, much. Because... No, please, please carry on, please. Sorry? No, I, I, was, I was asking the third question. 
is about the you, you are uh, uh, very much uh, involved uh, in in research uh, and you are a dedicated investigator in many domain of research you have been sitting in editorial boards so what are currently uh, in south america and in argentina the the most important topics of critical care research that are in, either in published studies or in things that are currently ongoing in your region well we would say that um you know that uh, you know the living network, no? Which is a, um, a a network of intensivists all over Latin America that has produced has published a very important study on resuscitation of shock, which is the Andromeda study, uh, in which uh, we tested the um, capital refill time as a way of of um, of following and of evaluating and also of treating patients with septic shock. So now, um, a similar study, or not, not similar, but the second study, which we did Andromeda II, uh, is being developed. Um, I think we'll uh, begin to, to, to recruit patients soon. He, the director of this is Dr. Galen Hernandez from Chile. And this study tries to, uh, to discern a question that is so discussed now, is it is a tailored approach, no? Uh, to patients with septic shock in diagnostic and also um, in, in, in treatment uh, is better, is associated with better outcomes than the usual um, approach. So I think that that is the, of Latin America, that is the most important project. But of course, um, there are groups, there are very important groups in Brazil, uh, which are led by um, by Flavia Machado, by Carmen Barbas, by Alex Yassi-Cambalcanti, and of course, with Marcelo Mato, that had an important lines on mechanical ventilation, and of course, on sepsis and shock. And so these groups are always producing um, breakthrough uh, studies, no? So they have just produced this study on fluids. So these are, I think, that these are the most important lines in, in Latin America. They are connected with sepsis, shock, and mechanical ventilation. Well, these are these are very important and hot topics in uh, critical care, and uh, we we have been so impressed by the number of publications coming out and high-level publications coming out on COVID-19. And within a few months, uh, you were able to reorganize and to big uh, give priority to these big studies, uh, and we have been uh, in uh, total admiration for that. And, uh, Elisa, as you know, we are uh, very interested, and I know that this is one, also one of your interests, about uh, cross-cultural variability. And uh, we live in different countries, and inside Europe it's very diverse, and I'm sure that it's also different between Argentina and uh, uh, Europe. Um, it's about uh, the patient-physician relationship, relationship with family members, information, communication, as well as the management of patients at the end of life. Um, do you have specific rules, specific laws about uh, uh, these points uh, in Argentina? And do you know whether there are some specific differences throughout uh, uh, South America? Well, uh, you know, in South America, the project Humanizing the ICU from Gabriel Eras was very important and people adhered to, to, this, uh, to these recommendations. And in in this uh, way, during the COVID, the first COVID um, wave, there was a kind of, a, as in everywhere in the world, you know, there was this kind of, of, of 
of anguish or of because of the lack of communication of, between patients and families. And soon um, there were many um, many ICUs that started to, to develop some kind of uh, of I know of permitting uh, permitting uh, families and uh, to to communicate with, with patients. So um, unusual unusual for the moment, no. Um, unusual to develop just to use the tablets in the ICU or the telephone weren't used before, and there was a facilitation facilitation of doctors. Doctors were terribly um, terribly busy. Notwithstanding this, they made their time to um, to to enhance communication with patients and families with, that had been living through such a. Uh, a terrible period. So, and and you know this was, this was so. Um, I was it was such a change during the first wave that it also appeared in the press, in the newspapers. You know that uh, a different uh, approach to the to to patients with COVID that that were um, admitted to the ICU. And this was, I know, this was very, I would say, very relevant. You no, know? it took a lot of time, but. Nobody complained of this. Yeah, such, uh, this is the feeling that this was good for everyone. Of course, and I believe that uh, for the next generation and for being attractive in our specialty, I think that these human aspects are also very appealing because we manage to deal with them. We don't undermine the time and the, the skills that are needed to better speak with family members, to involve them on a daily basis in whatever decision and sometimes in the care that we are providing to, to the critically ill. Mm -hmm. with, with regard to the to end of life, do you have a specific law in Argentina that, uh, uh, because as you know, in Europe uh, and as well as in the United States and North America, there are parts of regions where there are laws that really cover euthanasia, uh, assisted suicide, and uh, uh, is it the case in Argentina or in South America, or are we in a, in a classic model? I, I don't know about other countries, but we don't have um, a law of euthanasia. We have a law regarding um, advanced directives, but not that, you see. And these were things that were very much discussed during the pandemic. Not euthanasia, euthanasia by itself, but this thing of um, the last bed, who, what to do in the, what to do if you don't have enough resources, who to prioritize, and there was a lot of discussion about this in the society. Thank you, thank you, Elisa. I have another question that is uh, related to the free movement of ICU specialists inside South America. As you know, uh, the European society is promoting the fact that uh, we, we should have more uh, uh, freedom to work inside the European uh, uh, Europe, uh, uh, and the ICU specialist uh, should be recognized as an entire specialty as to have this free movement. Uh, so whatever the, the base specialty, whatever it is, whatever is the model in every country, if uh, the, the, the ICU specialists have the training and the competencies, they could move uh, 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 as they want uh, inside Europe um, to help and to, to work and to learn and to, to be ICU specialists. But for that to happen, 
we need to have a, a intensive care recognized as a specialty in the Annex 5 uh, here in, the, in Europe. Um, how is it in South America? Are, can you, for example, hire, if you're in a surge related to a pandemic, can you hire colleagues from other countries from South America? Can they come and work immediately in, in Argentina or do, are there specific rules uh, regarding that? The specific rules are especially for the medical profession, you see. And um, that is very, um, I would say that's very rigid, you know, the laws take big care of this. But having said this, uh, usually there is an acceptance of other specialists, you see, especially if the, the if this specialty <laughs> no, is uh, being issued by, um, by university, you see, because we can have the title of critical care is a specialist here in, in, in Argentina, and the title can be issued by the College of Physicians or by the university or by the uh, scientific societies. But um, all these are accepted. But from someone that came from abroad, if he or she has a title uh, um, issued by university, it is a national university, it is accepted. As, um, and the, the reverse is also true. Many people from other uh, countries come here to Argentina and do um, the course of specialization course of critical care. And if they have this, the title issued by the national university where they can work in their, in their respective countries. We have many, many um, uh, physicians from Colombia, from Ecuador and from Bolivia. Not only- Colombia, Ecuador and Bolivia. Yes, and also from, from Peru. And they come not only for, for critical care, but for other specialists too surgery, um, infectology, but many surgeons come here to, to be trained in Argentina. Yeah, I, and I agree with that. I think that uh, an ICU specialist uh, is, a, is a specialist that can deliver uh, the, the best of intensive care medicine, by whatever is the background, only if the people have uh, the, the right training and the, 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 the specifications, I think that uh, they, they should be able to move and to, to have the freedom to, to work uh, everywhere inside the Europe, European community. And this is, a, yes. so we hope to have the, the same uh, the, than, than what you have. Um, uh, Elisa, I have a question uh, about um, the how uh, ICUs are structured. Uh, do you have a 24 coverage, 24 hour coverage in the ICUs? Uh, do you have a specialist at night in your ICUs or are they on call? Uh, do you have a residents and interns at night? How are, how are the, the ICUs in Argentina organized? Well, they are um, they, they they are on duty 24 hours, and now we are trying to evolve to 12 hours, but always with full coverage. You see, um, because it is it, it, it is um, assumed that, and it's true that the 24 hour span really produces, I know, in a long time burnout, but but. Uh, people began being tired, tired of the specialty. So there's this movement towards the, uh, the duty of um, 12 hours. But um, we have full-time intensivists there. Now that's, that's, that's our main um, organizational uh, structure. And this is all over the country? Yes. The thing is that in some 
I would say some provinces and there are no there are no enough specialists and someone perhaps an internal medicine specialist or cardiologist makes all this coverage. That's a very important question. Elisa, for the for the future, so we have to to develop a, a specialty that will be attractive for the next generation of doctors mm -hmm. and the next generation of nurses. And we know that the, the pandemic didn't really target, but I think that it actually really uh, was the the you know the click and the, the the way for people to be aware that they were in uh, working in uh, in difficult conditions. And now we are having uh, closed ICU beds and closed hospital beds quite everywhere because of the nurse shortage. And I've been reading a paper from 1928 published in JAMA about the, the nurse shortage that is not something really new. Do you have specific requirements or do you have a, a new things that you are developing in Argentina to, to maintain your, your human resources, to have your nurses staying in the ICUs and your doctors coming to ICU and uh, going more into our specialty? <laughs> no. Well, I would say, I, I would like to say that this is um, politics from the Ministry of Health, but regrettably, okay, of course. this doesn't happen. Um, I can tell you what, um, what we do. Um, for example, no, and this is uh, directed to students of the career of medicine, because as you know, um, the specialty is not known. No, nobody knows about critical care. They know that uh, I, I, I'm referring to the students of medicine, or they know it. It is not, um, or the knowledge of critical care is not uh, installed in the career of medicine. So what we did was uh, to have a, we got an optional uh, subject which is called critical care. And, and we, we started three years ago and there was enthusiasm for them from the students. And now the Faculty of Medicine decided that this should be uh, a subject, just not, not an, an optional anymore, but an, an, a, a, as part of, of, the, of the whole career. So we are in that process and we hope that uh, that can help. Um, what I can say is that um, this year, for example, more than 200 uh, students uh, wanted to, to do the subject. So I think in that, yes, perhaps due to the pandemics, now people know about what happens in the ICU. And regarding nurses, um, well, there is a politics um, in the intensive care society, the SATI, uh, from, I would say that, that it has lasted for the last 10 years you know, to, to have a course that is dictated all, along, all, along, all over the country of specialization in critical care for nurses. And you know, many nurses all around the country do it, so that's interesting. So what I can say, there are offerings of knowledge, but really there should be also I know, a different uh, consideration from the health authorities. We really wanted something different. We thought that with that, after the, the pandemics, uh, well, we would be considered uh, in a different light. But I know maybe if that has happened anywhere in the world, what happened in France? You are just as you were pre-pandemic? Yeah. Did we, anything we are... change? No, in France, as in many parts of Europe, 
we are at the, in the same situation. But I would say that uh, you know, patience is what is, we, we miss the most. With the pandemic, people are getting more quickly nervous, are more quickly exhausted. And I think that basically they would not accept uh, uh, things that they were accepting before. And this takes us to a question directly related to that, uh, that comes from the chat on how to tackle the workplace stress working in the ICU. Do you have specific ways to reorganize your ICU as to reduce the level of stress? Do you have a screening of burnout? Do you have a, a, a working groups on that? Do you have a more communication inside the team to decrease the burden of, uh, of uh, the ICU? Is there something specific uh, that you do? No, no, really we don't have uh, that kind of activities and really regret that. We have tried before, before the pandemic to to have um, to organize something with a with a psychologist of the hospital, but they weren't um, interested. So really, we don't have any specific tool for that. But I can tell you is that um, I think that it was four years ago. A group in the Society of Critical Care made a, a survey between intensivists, and the, the level of, of burnout was high before yeah. the pandemic. So guess what happens now? Yeah, and uh, during the pandemic, the society, yes, I see, um, had a publication uh, on the level of burnout in nurses and doctors, and it was quite yes. high. And we, we have yes. really this hope that we will be facing a reduction in this uh, level of stress, burnout, uh, and uh, mental health symptoms uh, in healthcare providers. Elisa, maybe one last question for you. And... What is your feeling? Do you have a hope that you want to share with us for the delivery of critical care worldwide and for the next generation? What is your main hope? What is your main feeling? What could we, what could we, could we tell them to the, the youngest that are uh, listening to us today? Well, you know, I'm so enthusiastic about the specialty that you are. You are. I am still <laughs> after 30 years. So what I wish is that to I think that, that this is the best specialty because you have many combinations. You, you have physiology, if you like physiology. Well, physiology is there. You, it's what you see every day. And if you want clinical epidemiology, you can do it also. You have so many um, fields of knowledge that, um, I know, it never ends, you see. You never get bored. So that for, for, this is what I always tell students of medicine. Uh, you are in a specialty that um, I know it takes into account different diseases, different specialties in medicine. You see everything there, you see. So, um, and the possibilities of research and of uh, answering uh, important questions that haven't been answered yet are there. So my, my, my message is optimistic and, and what I, I feel is that um, intensivists will, I know, will, I would say, will take conscious of themselves of what they mean in the whole society because the pandemic has shown that. So um, I, that is to, to be, you know, there's um, in, in Brazil, it started um, a movement which is the pride of being an intensivist. And this is what I always say, you know, I wake up feeling pride of being so, and the same feeling is what I hope to, to, to grow in the next generations. Thank you, Professor Estansora. I really 
share your optimism and your enthusiasm. And we are many convinced that uh, we are working, uh, uh, caring for seriously ill patients, but with an interdisciplinary team, we are working together and together we are intensive care. Thank you very much. Yes. Uh, and uh, okay. I admire you like many of uh, the people in the chat uh, that are sending you all our thanks and all our admiration. Thank you, Elisa. Thank you, thank a, you, Elisa. Nice thank you for, for the invitations and my warmest regards to all. Thank you. Bye-bye.